Let's pray. Father, we ask and pray now that the words of my mouth might be the words of God's mouth and the meditation of our hearts on this passage that we set before us this evening might be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. What difference <coughs> does how you spend the Lord's day have on how you relate to your work colleagues on Monday? Do you, like many of us, get pulled into the office politics and the gossip around the coffee machine? Or has what you've experienced on Sunday have a difference to how you relate to your work colleagues? What difference does your worship of the Lord on Sunday, coming to church, praising Him, praying to Him, hearing God's Word, celebrating communion, enjoying fellowship with one another, have how does all of those means of grace have on you how you relate to the poor and the homeless and the vulnerable and the marginalized in our society? According to Isaiah 58, it should make all the difference in the world. There was a meditation on the Easter message that a, a pastor in America by the name of S.M. Lockridge, who was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, preached. And it had the title, which went viral, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You may have heard of it. We've actually uh, used it here one Easter. The call of Isaiah 58 is, It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. This is how Jesus' brother, James, states the same point that Isaiah makes. In James chapter 127, he writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The point that the Lord makes through Isaiah here is that unless your devotion to the Lord works itself out in passionate and self-giving love for your neighbor, it is worthless. James goes on to write, does he not? Faith without works is dead. That is a New Testament principle that is stated and restated Again and again, let me give you five short examples to make that point. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, Jesus said that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And when we have at the end of Matthew 25, the great picture that Jesus portrays of the sheep and the goats and the Son of Man seated on the throne, what does he say? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was and you. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, when a lawyer asks him this question, 
what is the greatest commandment, and Jesus summarized the Lord, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, being a legally minded person. He said, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus replied with a parable of what we know as the Good Samaritan, or as one theologian has cha- uh, uh, who's done an exposition of this, the call of the Jericho Road. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us in the passage 1 and 2 that tells us how we have been saved by sovereign grace tells us that we have been saved to do good works which he has prepared beforehand. In in Titus chapter 2.14 we're told that Jesus purchased for himself a people who are eager to do what is good. The, the, the Bible from cover to cover marks out God's people as those who are the true people of God who are marked out by the fact that they are eager to do what is good. I don't wish to um, have a political debate this evening, but just think about this for a moment. Do you think, by and large... The welfare state is a good thing. Do you think that it's possible that us, particularly I think in the reformed evangelical community, have not embraced this call of the Jericho Road or this call to do good as fully and as radically as we are commanded by the Lord Jesus to do? And so we have robbed ourselves of the multiple blessings and the joy that he longs to flood our lives with, as this passage goes on to show us. Why is that? I thought about that this, this, this week as I've been preparing it. Why is it? And I think it's true. You may disagree, and I'd be happy to hear from you. You can heckle if you wish. Probably too polite. But I fear that we in the Reformed Evangelical community are somewhat spooked by good works. We don't like to be thinking about good works because it almost sounds like justification by works, salvation by works. I think we have wrongly interpreted and applied justification by faith alone. One of the great pillars of the Reformation is justification by faith alone. But the message of the New Testament is, it is justification by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. And the promise of God to his people who choose to embrace, as Isaiah 58, 6 says, this is the kind of fasting I have chosen. The people of God who embrace that is our promise that we will experience the richest of his blessings. If you, then you, is a refrain that is repeated time and time again from Isaiah 58, 9 through 14. And it's summarized in this beautiful picture, you'll break forth like the dawn. Here's my summary outline of the passage that I want us to walk through this evening. Devotion to the Lord that is devoid of compassion for your neighbor, is rebellion. But choosing to delight in the Lord creates radical, neighbor-loving worshipers whom the Lord 
delights to bless. That's the summary of Isaiah 58. Check it out as we work through the text, please. Devotion to the Lord, devotion in inverted commas, to the Lord that is devoid of compassion for your neighbor is rebellion. I take that from the first five verses of Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and, their dis- and to the descendants of Jacob their sins, because they're guilty of seeking me out. That's what he says in verse 2. But why are they doing it? This public indictment that the Lord has against his professing people is one of rebellion because it goes to the corrupt heart motivation which manifests itself in how they treat the Lord and indeed their neighbours with utter disdain. They they are daily seeking the Lord, verse 2. Their daily devotion is nonetheless exposed as a sham. And their motivation is dealt with by the Lord in verse 3, by turning their own questions they have asked Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Why have we fasted? Jesus himself makes crystal clear that fasting is not an optional extra for the super spiritual. He says, does he not, when you fast. But he does show us that there is a world of difference between hypocritical religious fasting and true gospel fasting. And we'll think a bit more about what gospel fasting looks like later on. But religious hypocritical devotion is motivated, what I would call a a spiritual selfie type heart. We do live in a selfie generation, don't we? We're always taking selfies. Can't wait to be seen with a selfie. Click with somebody else, you know, a famous face, a selfie with them. But that's religious fasting, to be seen by others. Some people make a big fuss about the fact they're fasting, says Jesus. Why? To be seen by others. Look at me. Click, I'm fasting. No, I'm going to be miserable. I'm fasting. And, and the motivation is to control God. Religious fasting and religious praying is really just to gain control of your environment and make it a better place for you. And to treat the Lord like he's a piñata, you know, one of those paper or horses that are strung up full of sweets at kids' parties and then they've got to get a stick and whack the horse so the paper rips and the sweeties fall out. We don't treat the Lord like that ever, do we? We get the prayer stick out, or even the fasting stick out, and we whack the piñata, and out come the sweeties, because God's a a church-broken God under our control. That's the (coughs) indictment that the Lord has. And they also treat each other, and their workers exposes even more of their sinful, rebellious hearts. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your work as your fasting ends in quarrel, quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Notice the Lord's piercing questions in verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? 
a day acceptable to the Lord. So the question, misery loves company, doesn't it? So this is the question that I've been asking myself. And so, as I say, misery loves company, so here we go. This is the question I've been asking myself. What practical difference does how I spend Sunday impact on how I treat my neighbors on Monday through Saturday? What practical difference does it make? Put it another way, do you love God because he's useful to you or because he's altogether lovely? It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. But choosing to delight in the Lord creates radical neighbor-loving worshipers. Look at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? In verses 6 through 7, the Lord contrasts religious sham fasting with true fasting. He says, this is the kind of fasting I have chosen. You would expect, would you not, if you were writing this, to have a how-to-fast instruction. You can find how-to-fast instructions if you want, but that is not what the Lord says, does he? He shows us that flowing out of true gospel fasting, it produces a people and in fact is, listen to the list and it's in these verses and in verse 10, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the wanderer with shelter, to clothe the naked, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Verse 10, to do away with the yoke of oppression and the malicious finger pointing, to spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Social justice, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked and providing a home for the homeless. It's quite radical, isn't it? In other words, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, even at great personal cost to yourself, is the point that Jesus makes in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. So please think about these questions in your own heart this evening. How do you feel about abortion and how will you respond to the proposed changes to the abortion laws they would like to extend the window of opportunity to slaughter more unborn babies the safest place on planet earth for for an unborn child should be its mother's womb but for many it's the most dangerous place on the earth there is a petition going around if you want to know more about it talk to martin shotbolt that we cannot we can 
it's an electronic thing, sign the petition, tell your, own, tell, tell your MP that you're opposed to the government extending the laws on abortion. Another question, when you, are, when you encounter injustice in your workplace, and I, I, from my experience, there, is quite, there, there are times when co work colleagues are treated unfairly. And sometimes they, some people have bosses that don't treat their workers fairly. And they suffer injustice. When you come across that, and you come across a work colleague who's being treated unjustly, do you ever stick up for them? Or do you keep your head down? Because it might be career limiting. How do you react to those homeless folk that we see sat outside Tesco? Or the rough sleepers at the railway station? Or in the bus depot in Bedford? Or Milton Keynes? Or Luton? What happens in your gut when you see them? There's a fascinating question in verse 7, isn't there, or statement. <coughs> do you see these people, let me put it in the form of a question, do you see these people as your own flesh and blood? That's a very searching question, isn't it? Because they're made in the image and likeness of Almighty God. And Jesus himself, the ultimate good Samaritan, took on flesh and blood. Whose flesh and blood? Our flesh and blood. Do we see these people whom society despises and religious people have got no, no time for as our own flesh and blood? You don't need to go back far in the history of this nation to realize that when God raises up a people who embrace this kind of fasting the radical change for good hap happens in this nation let me give you uh, two older examples and one uh, up-to-date one how many of you come across the seventh earl of shaftesbury you need to google the seventh earl of shaftesbury he was a christian politician he was around at the time of william wilberforce involved in the abolition of slavery but he was a, a very avid social reformer and used his position in politics to introduce such radical changes to, for example, child employment law, the shoving of your kids up the chimney. He dealt with that. The f pr providing homes for homeless people, providing food for hungry people. When he died, he had a state funeral. And the streets of London were lined with poor people. And many of them held up the plaque. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 7th Earl of Shaftesbury. William Wilberforce devoted his whole political career to see the vile sin of slavery abolished. Even in the teeth of opposition from within, his, from, from within the Houses of Parliament and the commercial enterprises, the finance, where a nation builds its finances on the backs of the marginalized and people stand up for them, they're putting themselves in the firing line.
But when God raises these people up who give themselves and spend themselves, God does things. We are privileged to support Azalea. One of the things that um, Joe is very keen to support, the, the serving of sex workers in Luton. So where do we get, where do we get the emotional and spiritual resources in order to be such Christ-like, radical, neighbor-loving worshippers? What's the answer the text gives us to that question? It is by choosing the kind of fast that he has chosen. Put it another way. It is by choosing to delight ourselves in the Lord. I take that from the if-you phrases the Lord uses. The, the if-you found in verse 9. In verse 10, let me read you what he says in verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please... Now, two things here, keeping the Sabbath, calling the Sabbath a delight, and choosing true fasting. That's what the Lord is calling us to, and I believe that, in many ways, is what he means by to worship him in spirit and in truth. Sabbath keeping, which we touched on briefly last week, Sabbath keeping is not, as we said, a list of rules and do's and don'ts, that's religious Sabbath keeping, so you can feel good about you and bad about them and look down your self-righteous nose at someone else. That's, not, that's religious Sabbath keeping, it's vile, but Sabbath keeping, gospel Sabbath keeping is choosing to own and submit to the Lordship of Christ as the King and the very centre of your life. It is to rest in and rejoice in the yoke-breaking freedom that he has purchased for you in his own blood at Calvary. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And he ultimately is the ultimate neighbor lover, is he not? He's the ultimate good Samaritan who, who modeled for us what true neighbor love looks like. And we're all benefits, beneficiaries, are we not, of his neighbor loving sacrifice on Calvary. And Sabbath keeping is choosing, as I say, to delight in the neighbor-loving, true Good Samaritan for all he did for us on the cross and find in him that he is your supreme delight. And he was delighted to spend himself on Calvary for you. That was an act of worship that he rendered to God and to us on Calvary. And gospel fasting is choosing, there are three things I just want to highlight to you from choosing this type of fasting from the New Testament. Gospel fasting is literally choosing to go without those good gifts of food, those good gifts of God, for example food, for a season to long for and to seek the bridegroom of your soul. Matthew chapter 9, 15. Gospel fasting 
is seeking deeper intimacy with the bridegroom of your soul. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. It's, it's setting aside time and setting aside legitimate things like food, for example, for a season, in order to seek the bridegroom of your soul. Gospel fasting is choosing to set aside time and the normal healthy pursuits in order to seek the Lord to meet a particular pressing need. I take that from Mark chapter 9, 29, where at the end of an exorcism that Jesus performed on a demon-possessed boy, his disciples came to him and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Footnote in the NIV and some of the other versions says, Jesus' answer is, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Sometimes there are such pressing, desperate needs that only fasting, giving aside, setting aside, particularly to seek the Lord. This, Lord, this is so deep. This is so heavy. This is so serious. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And gospel fasting is choosing to devote uninterrupted time to seek the Lord to prepare you to serve him in the power of the Spirit. I take, I take that from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And it's fascinating when you meditate upon that Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's, it's, it's loaded with um, wonderful truth. It's a massive thing. But just let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus was feasting on while he was fasting? The answer is Deuteronomy. Every answer that Satan came, every temptation that Satan hid him with, he answered from the book of Deuteronomy. He had so feasted on God as he'd revealed himself in Deuteronomy, he was prepared to serve God in the power of the Spirit. He was prepared to lay down his life as the ultimate good neighbor on Calvary's cross because he had set himself aside. He had chosen the kind of fasting that the Lord had chosen. That's what it means to choose to devote ourselves, to delight in the Lord. And it creates radical, neighbor-loving worshipers. It's Sunday but Monday's coming. And those people who choose this kind of fasting are those people whom the Lord delights to bless. We've touched on this before. Notice the if you, then you. Verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then, verse 9, you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Verse 10 is the if use. Verse, half past, halfway through verse 10, 
if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like the spring which never fails. Your people rebuild ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You'll be, you'll be called repairer of broken walls and restorer of streets of, with dwellings. And then verse 13 and following. If The three if-yous in verse 13 are followed by verse 14. Then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. And to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. This is picture language, but it's Exodus-type picture language. He is writing his immediate hearers are those who are going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then they're going to be brought out of Babylonian captivity. And it's a lovely picture of the ultimate exodus of God's people on the way home to in from through the wilderness. And we are in the wilderness. This is the wilderness that we're in. But how much blessing, noticed, is promised to those who choose the kind of fasting he chooses. He promises that he will be all that his people need him to be on the journey home. They will experience the, un, the all-satisfying joy of his unfailing love. The intimacy with him in answering prayer. The light will rise like the dawn and you'll be... This is lovely gospel picture language of the blessings that God longs to pour out on his people who choose the kind of fasting he has chosen. How much joy is he willing to unleash into our lives if we will but by his grace choose the kind of fasting he he has chosen and if we choose to call the Sabbath a delight. May the Lord make us increasingly a church and a people who embrace the kind of fasting he has chosen for his glory, their good, and our joy. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. Let's pray. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you chose that kind of fasting and we're here this evening because the ultimate good Samaritan has broken the chains of our slavery and set us free. He is is feeding us and fed us with manna from heaven. He is the water of life. He is the joy of life. Help us to become more and more Christ-like as a church for Jesus' sake, for your glory the good of those who are marginalized in our society and for our overwhelming joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We'll conclude our time together by singing, Guide me, O my great Redeemer, pilgrim through this barren land. Please stand as you're able when the musicians strike up.